Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Baptist here in Rocky Top, Tennessee. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Looking at preparing for this message in Acts chapter 15, we're looking at the importance of questions, and in this particular case, the questions of salvation. And it reminded me of a well-known game show, and it debuted August 16th, 1999. It was one of the most popular television game shows of all time. And it debuted during primetime, hosted by Regis Philbin, most of you will know what I'm talking about. Who wants to be a millionaire? And this game show presented contestants with multiple choice questions that increased in difficulty until the final and presumably hardest question, which was worth $1 million. There were 15 questions total, and it wasn't until three months later that a contestant finally won the $1 million prize. The gentleman's name was John Carpenter, and he was an I. IRS agent, and he was a very intelligent man. He breezed through the first 14 questions with relative ease, and he didn't use any of his lifelines. And now the lifelines were the game shows built-in helps for the contestants, such as 50-50, phone a friend, and poll the audience. The million-dollar question was this. Which of these U.S. presidents appeared on the television series Laugh-In? And the choices were A, Lyndon Johnson, B, Richard Nixon, C, Jimmy Carter, and D, Gerald Ford. And at this moment, John Carpenter paused and decided to use one of his lifelines to phone a friend. And he wanted to call someone for help. So Carpenter called his dad, but in a clever surprise to the audience and to everyone watching on television, he wasn't calling for help. Rather, he was calling to tell his dad that he was about to be a millionaire? The answer was Richard Nixon. And with that answer, Carpenter became the first millionaire winner in the game show's history. Some questions are fun and lighthearted, and some have very high stakes. Some are simple, some are serious, but a very select few questions have eternal ramifications, and that's where we find ourselves today. We left off in Acts chapter 14, and I want to summarize quickly what happened at the end of that chapter. You have Paul and Barnabas and they're coming back, finishing up some of the starts, uh, the final stops of their military journey. And there in verses 27 and 28 that close out the chapter, we read, When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. In other words, they spent a lot of time telling of the great things that God had done. Now, Paul and Barnabas completed their first missionary journey of the early church. And they again returned to the church there in Antioch that had commissioned them for the mission work. They gather all of the church together. They give this report for all the work that God has done, particularly mentioning how the Gentiles had been grafted into God's promise of redemption and were now fully part of the family of God. And at the risk of being repetitive, because I know we talked about this last week, this is a good model for us to follow for mission work. We go, we do, and we return to the home church and we share the work God has done. It's edifying, it's inspiring, it's encouraging. And so here you have this celebration of success of the mission work, but then there is a problem. A huge question that arises in the early church that's far more than a million dollar question. It has to do with salvation, the salvation of the Gentiles. But in a much larger sense, the question is, is salvation by grace alone, or do we have to work for it? Is there a law that must be kept in order to be justified before God? 
And that's where we begin our message today in Acts chapter 15. So this is Acts 15, the first five verses. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So as Paul and Barnabas were with the church in Antioch, debriefing from the first missionary journey, some people from Judea interrupted the party, and they began to insert some teaching to the requirements of salvation. Now, while we don't know the exact identity of these people, they were what is known as Judaizers. Judaizers. These were Jewish Christians who taught that Gentile converts must follow the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, and they must be circumcised. In addition to believing in Jesus Christ. They had to do all of these, the law of Moses, be circumcised for the males, and then believe in Jesus Christ. And all of these things were required together to be saved. Now, for the past several Sundays, I've used the term Gentiles and Jews a lot with maybe some peppered explanations for these different groups. So let me try to tie up some loose ends before we go any further. For some of you, this may be review. For some of you, it may be new material, but it's still important in understanding what's happening here. So first of all, the Jews. So to this day, the Jewish people are enormously proud of their ancestry and history as a nation. It's a very defining feature of that people group. And in the Bible, Jewish people are referred to as Jews. Sometimes they're referred to as Hebrews, other times Israelites. These are all synonyms for the same group of people. And the origin story of the Jewish people is the call of this man named Abram, and God will eventually change his name to Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac, Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob will have 12 sons who will constitute the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, especially with Jacob, the way the progeny is produced is more than a little dicey, but we can cover that later. But eventually this group emerges as a large group of people in Egypt, but in Egypt, they're slaves. So God calls a man named Moses to lead them out of Egypt, And eventually, with a strong emphasis on that word eventually, they make it to a territory known as Canaan, which will be renamed Israel, the Promised Land. And you can probably deduce and assume that there's a lot more to this story, but that's a very, very brief skeletal summary. But the big reveal for the Jewish people happens early with Abraham. Through his descendants, he is told that all peoples of the earth will be blessed, all people. And this promise is repeated over and over and over again, and it becomes clearer and clearer, even in the Old Testament, that God would send the Messiah through the Jewish nation to bless and redeem all people and to bring the kingdom of God to earth, not just the Jewish people, but all peoples of the earth. And so then secondly, we have the Gentiles. Now, if you do a little research on the meaning of the word Gentile, You're not going to go down too far into a rabbit hole. The meaning of the word Gentile is just simply a person who is not a Jew. 
So primarily, this is a designation that comes to us from a biblical worldview and biblical language. And so for the Jews, it was very simple. Either you were a pure, authentic, 100% Jew, or you were not. And if you were not, then you were a Gentile. And in a stronger sense, Jews viewed Gentiles as pagans, meaning that they didn't worship the one true God, and they were likely involved in false worship of many gods. They perhaps sacrificed to idols, and they did a host of other things that would be contrary to biblical teaching. But now, Paul and Barnabas and Peter, they have went around proclaiming Jesus and saying, hey, look, it is by God's grace that you were saved. You're free from following the law of Moses. And now everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. This message is predictably very appealing to the Gentiles. And God calls the Gentiles to be saved, and they are saved. But not everyone is happy. And these are the Judaizers that were introduced here right in the beginning of Acts chapter 15. Now, to be fair, it's easy to see why. I don't question the sincerity of these Judaizers, of these Pharisees. But I also want to be clear, even though they were very sincere in what they believed, they were sincerely wrong. But I do think it's helpful for us, to, for us to understand their perspective. So for generations, the Jewish people had, if they were a good Jew, meticulously followed the law. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, broadly speaking, the law, which is also called the law of Moses, is what they call it here, was the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And for simplicity's sake, the law is broken down into three categories. The moral law. This was focused on God's holy, righteous, and unchanging character, and primarily we see these exemplified in what's very familiar to a lot of folks, which is the Ten Commandments. Then we have civil law. These were regulations on the day-to-day -day life of the Hebrew people, and these laws governed such things as marriage, divorce, sexual conduct, and property rights, and the penalties for these various crimes. And ceremonial law, finally, related to the manner that the Israelites were to worship God. The ceremonial law instructed them on the proper way to offer sacrifices, to perform rituals, to celebrate festivals. There were laws governing what was clean and what was unclean in this category. And there's some debate on the number, but the frequent count comes in at 613 laws that were given for the Jewish people to follow. Some were do's and some were do-nots. And following this law had separated Jews from all other nations on earth and had made them a distinctive people. They were a kingdom of priests, and the law represented the holiness of God, the holiness of the God of Israel. To them, the Gentiles, for them to just to be able to come in at the last moment in history, relatively speaking, and receive the same blessings from God just didn't seem fair. And so this group was arguing that they had to follow the law and that the males had to be circumcised. So simply put, it was a salvation by works with grace mixed in. Salvation by works with grace mixed in. And this group was also heavily focused on circumcision. Now, why? Well, if we're honest, this is an odd thing to talk about, especially from the pulpit. But this issue arises over and over again in the New Testament as a point of contention between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. So as any good student of the Bible ought to do, the logical question when this keeps coming up is just to simply say, well, why? Well, I'll be direct. I'm still going to avoid some technicals here, but I will allude to a few. The circumcision was to show God would bless the fruitful reproduction of the Israelites. It was an uncommon practice, 
to further separate Israel from other nations by God asking them to do this. And it was to symbolize less reliance on flesh for prosperity and have total reliance on God. But the biggest and most important reason was just simply that God had commanded the Israelite patriarch, the number one Israelite patriarch, to be circumcised as a covenant between God and God's people. So the rationale was if God said it, you had better do it because this was God's chosen covenantal symbol and sign between the covenant between God and the Jewish people. But all of these objections were roadblocks to reaching the Gentiles. And the apostles knew that God had revealed something so much greater in the last days here, that salvation was not of works, but it was God's grace through faith. So how did they respond to this? How are they going to solve this problem? Well, they find themselves in Jerusalem at a meeting that has come to be known in Christian history as the Jerusalem Council. It sounds very important, Jerusalem Council, and it was very important. So here's what happens. This is Acts 15, verse, starting in verse 6. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now, the apostle Peter here, Simon Peter, had already dealt with this issue firsthand. You might recall the vision that Peter has of the sheep coming down from heaven with all sorts of different animals that the Jews considered unclean. And God communicates to Peter that all of this has, has been made clean. It's been purified, clearing the way for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. And then Peter then goes to the house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile. And he, Cornelius, and all of his household is saved. Now, there had been other examples of non-Jews being saved, such as the Ethiopian eunuch, which we've covered here in the book of Acts. But the issue had not been quite as contentious because these people had somewhat of a Jewish background. They were God-fearers who did follow many of the Jewish customs as outlined in the Old Testament. So Peter has to show that what he was proclaiming wasn't a hybrid of a little Jewish tradition and following the law mixed with the new revelation of Christ, but it was all about the grace of God. So he speaks to the council and he says that God has given them, the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just as he had done for the Jewish Christians, that there was no difference made between the blessings given to the Jews and the blessings given to the Gentiles. And then he says a key statement. I love these key statements that can sometimes be so easy to miss, but they're so vital and important. Peter says a key statement here, having cleansed their hearts by faith having cleansed their hearts by faith. The cleansing of their hearts, the forgiveness of sins, have been brought about by faith in Jesus Christ, not the law. And it never would be the law. But get this, it also wasn't the law for the Jews either. 
Peter goes on to say, now, therefore, why are you, Jewish people, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? If we were in the classroom, I'd say highlight that last statement and underline it, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. What Peter was saying was this, go back and retrace all Jewish history, from Abraham to Moses to David to the prophets, look at everyone, scour the pages of scripture, and you will find that no one in Israelite history was able to keep the law. So why are you putting this yoke on the Gentiles? A yoke was a wooden cross piece that's fastened over the necks of two animals and attached to a plow or a cart that they are then required to pull. And these animals had to pull this heavy burden as they worked and worked and worked tirelessly every day. But Peter says, we can't bear it. We can't bear this yoke. It was too heavy. So don't expect the Gentiles to do it either. And then Peter repeats that great truth in Revelation that reprises itself over and over and over again throughout the pages of scripture, verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Jews saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Gentiles saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And after Peter speaks, everyone goes silent. But that silence said a lot. They knew that Peter had shared truth that was from the word of God. Paul and Barnabas then make their case and talk of the wonders God had done among the Gentiles during their first missionary journey. And finally, James jumps in and speaks. Now, James was the half-brother of Jesus, and he is a mighty force in the early church. He compliments Peter for what he has shared, and then James adds some icing to the cake. He essentially says everything that Peter, he calls him, James calls him Simeon, it's true. He says everything that he says is true. But you can also look to the Old Testament scriptures for confirmation of this as well. And then he quotes Amos. The prophet Amos wrote, After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now that's poetic. But what it's saying is it had always been part of God's redemptive plan to save both Jews and Gentiles. And salvation had always come had always come by faith through God's grace, by believing God. Jews had often fallen and failed at the calling God had placed on their lives. The dynasty of David had fallen, but the prophet Amos wrote that God would one day restore it and the Gentiles would be called to salvation as well. What had been veiled and difficult to see was now becoming clear. So what are some takeaways that we can have here? Well, first of all, what the law could not do, Jesus did. Now, certainly this here would deserve a lifetime of study and gratitude, but I'll try to summarize it extraordinarily briefly here. The law of the Old Testament revealed God's standard for righteousness. When I talk about the law again, talking primarily about the first five books of the Bible, and the law served as a mirror for humanity. It showed us who we really were and what we will always be apart from God's holiness. And the reflection that came back on us was not a pretty one. 
Sin was serious and it required justice. So God instituted an elaborate animal sacrifice system to show us that sin must be atoned for. And yet, as was always the case, the blood of animals did not cleanse people. Rather, it was a very intense object lesson that pointed to something far greater that God would do. And it introduces a key Christian doctrine. Now, please don't be afraid of that word doctrine, but it's the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. I'll explain it. No matter what we do, we can never completely fulfill God's righteous standard. We can never fulfill the law. We can never make ourselves holy. No sacrifice can or make, can do or make atonement for our sins. Our hearts are evil and wicked. And the very fact that we resist this reality is proof of its existence. One of my most favorite quotes here from Malcolm Muggridge, a British journalist, says that the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. So God could have stepped back and just said, that's the way it is. So be it. But he didn't do that. Now, Paul will address grace and faith in all his letters. And he writes this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He said, for our sake, he made him, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's break that apart. For our sake, that means you, that means me. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. God made Jesus who never knew sin, who never had a sinful thought, who was holy and divine and righteous in every way. He became sin as if though every sin that had ever been committed or will be committed was put on Jesus so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For the person who has accepted Christ, when God looks at us, he does not see the sinful, depraved person we once were, but he sees the cross of Christ. He sees Jesus. And what we get is complete forgiveness, complete atonement. May I say that in the 16th century, the whole Protestant Reformation turned on this verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the justice of God, meet the mercy of God with the love of God. Isaiah reminded us of this way back in his prophetic book, All We Like Sheep Have Gone Astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Secondly, Christ grants the free pardon of sin. I learned something interesting about the legal system and pardons some time ago. One of the unique powers of the President of the United States is to issue pardons to those who have committed crimes. And interestingly, a pardon does not in any way imply that the person receiving it was innocent. Rather, in accepting the pardon, they are actually admitting guilt in the very acceptance of the pardon that is given. Very old Supreme Court case known as Ex Parte Garland showed that, among other things, a prisoner must be willing to accept the pardon before it's put into effect and they are released. The person offered the pardon must accept it. You and I have been offered the greatest pardon of all time, the pardon of sin, the free pardon of sin given to us by Jesus Christ. 
And the doctrine of imputation is helpful here, what Martin Luther famously and more elegantly called the glorious exchange, where all sinners, but Christ is the great Savior, who when we accept that pardon that he gives, his righteousness is imputed to us. Paul puts it this way. For it is by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. He's talking about Adam here. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Romans 5, 19 through 21. And then finally, by grace, you were saved through faith. You know, we sang that beautiful song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. And I know personally, I so often fail to understand and grasp the magnitude of that. We are saved by God's grace. Not a mixture of good works and noble deeds with God's grace. Not an infusion of grace by following sacraments and rituals. Not a trajectory of life that is headed in the right direction and then eventually is met with God's grace. No, it's none of that. Just the unmerited favor of a merciful loving God. The Apostle Paul, who stood before the Jerusalem Council and proclaimed the grace of God, succinctly summarizes this heavenly truth in Ephesians in a way that only he can, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he writes, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Such an important, important passage there from Ephesians. A man named Robert Lowry was born in... Uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1826, and he was the son of an Irish immigrant, and as he grew, he felt the call of God on his life as a preacher. He held several pastorates across the northeastern United States, and he always considered preaching to be his main vocation, though he showed enormous talent as a songwriter as well. He wrote music to well-known songs such as Marching to Zion by Isaac Watts and All the Way my Savior Leads Me by the legendary Fanny Crosby. All in all, he wrote more than 500 tunes, and he's considered instrumental in the modern revival of Christian music, despite being born nearly two centuries ago. One song remains very popular, and we've sang it here before, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. But what if the Judaizers, what if those Pharisees, the Jews saying that you had to follow the law of Moses. What if they had won the argument there at the Jerusalem Council? What if we abandoned the great doctrines that we have discussed today? 
the song, if you know it, would sound a lot differently, wouldn't it? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the law of Moses. What can make me whole again? Nothing but good works and perfection. This is all my hope and peace, tirelessly working to be holy. Oh no, that's not the song, is it? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flood that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, Isaac Watts wrote, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Dear God, help us to take the truth of what we have learned here and go out to the world with the opportunities that you will give us to share the amazing grace of Jesus. God, please help our church to grow in its impact and its reach for the kingdom of God. And Lord, if there is anyone listening to this message that has not accepted the free pardon of sin that you offer through the grace of the Lord Jesus, God, I pray that they would do that, Lord. And I pray that if they need to understand more, that they would find someone, one of us, so that we may talk with them and share with them this great truth that was your truth, your revelation, since before the foundation of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.